0: Well, let me go ahead and get
1: started. Please feel free to continue to eat, or if you need a second or another bread roll, help yourself. I think there's plenty of desserts over there. So I know we build this as a history of Methodism, but in many ways, it's much bigger than any denomination. It's much bigger than just Methodist. We usually... Try to start the conversation with this guy, John Wesley, who was, will be really a topic of conversation. A couple of things I want you to notice his dates, and those will be important for us 1703 to 1791, the 18th century, which obviously was a very, very important century for our nation. And we're going to show you how Wesley influenced the development of America, um, the Great Awakenings. We'll talk about that. But really, the history of what Methodism was and became is much bigger than just Wesley. He was sort of a surfer, if you will, uh, riding a very large wave of Christian revival that swept from Europe into into England, and then into the United States. And it really changed the course of Western history. So this is, a, this is a big movement of which Methodism was a small part. A couple other things to notice about Wesley. Look at those lovely locks. <laughs> Isn't that gorgeous? Supposedly it's real hair for him. Uh, the other thing that's always lots of fun, you can sort of tell from the photo, he was a man of very small stature. Uh, they debate... How tall he was, because he fudged it all, right? His life. Um, so if he was five foot, I, I would be impressed. They had a life size statue of him at the center of our seminary, and he looked like a Smurf. I mean, he was just a little bitty guy. They put his hand up so he'd appear taller, um, and we, of course, as good. Devout Christian men abused that statue like you wouldn't believe. Uh, We put Red Raider finger puppet on it. uh, For Halloween, we put a pumpkin on his head. (laughs) Poor Wesley has been abused. But he was uh, an Oxford-trained Anglican priest, and we'll talk a lot about that. He was a brilliant guy. Some of his writings are a little difficult to read because he is so 18th-century Oxford. But there was lots that God did with him. But before we get into Wesley proper, let me sort of start here. So, uh, well, going up in El Paso, you have these bad boys. This is not going to work. Well, yeah. Uh. Sorry, there's such a delay on this, Ken. I can't get it to stop. Can you surrender on me back here to tell me? Yeah, yeah. So busted that joke. But everybody's seen a Roadrunner, right? They're, they're awesome. They're wonderful. But a Roadrunner's ancestor, they tell us now, is a T-Rex. <coughs> No. That's what they say. So the DNA, all that, who knows. But in many ways, Methodism that you've probably seen in your life is a roadrunner. What I'm going to try to show you is the ancestor that is the T-Rex. We once were an earth-shattering cultural Christian movement that, as I said, changed the course of Western European history. So one of the reasons we want to do this study is to get back to rediscover what God was doing. Just for my own sanity, who was raised Methodist in here? So we've got a a, a good section of us. So some of you were alive in 1968, right? Yep. What was the origin of the name United Methodist? With, evangelical. Evangelical. We with, <laughs> with the who? With the black Manchester? No. I mean, we did do that, but that's not where they got the name. Where did they get it? The Evangelical Church. Yes, the EUB, the Evangelical United Brethren. Who are they? <laughs> what, what do they have to do with anything, right? Today we'll, we'll go through that. It was the Evangelical Brethren which is the German origin. um, And it was a huge movement in the United States. So how was that for a wonderful merger of names? The Evangelical United Brethren and the Methodist Episcopal. And so we unite as United Methodists. The United part came from the United Brethren. Talk about getting the short end of the stick. Should have been Methodist Brethren. But anyway, it was what it was. So we move on to the history of Christianity in Europe. And remember, uh, Wesley is pretty much all of the 18th century. So we need to back up to the 16th century, the 1500s. Now I want you to think about how long Christianity had been in Europe. When did it start? When did the Gospel reach Europe? Do you know yeah, yeah, for sure. Paul went to Rome, uh, Paul goes to Athens, uh, so it begins pretty much uh, when Jesus dies i mean we'll we 'll be generous and say maybe forty a d so Christianity by the time we 're talking today, starting our conversation um, with Martin Luther, had been in Europe for over a millennia. So about 1,500 years Christianity had been developing in Europe. And it had crossed from one side to the other. Uh, It was the, the dominant political religious force. We had seen the Crusades. We'd seen a lot of up and down. But there was a development within Christianity in Europe. And it's really hard for us to wrap our brain around, but in many ways the, the Catholic Church was the church. Uh, it controlled everything, certainly in Western Europe. And it's sort of like we imagine uh, we have a federal government and then we have state governments. In Europe, the federal government really was the Vatican in Rome. There were individual states, like England and France, and they had their own agendas. But really, when it came to supernatural, supranational events, it was really controlled by the Vatican. And there were ups and downs. Um, emperors uh, from the Holy Roman Empire, which is Germany, uh, tried to uh, to change that a little bit. They have kings, like in France, that will try to buck that tradition. But for the most part, the control of... Rome held uh, through the first 1,500 years. And if anybody was raised Catholic, I I don't want to disparage you now, but um, the Catholicism that you know today, despite what you may have heard, was not the Catholicism of the 16th century. As all institutions sometimes do, there was a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of Corruption, a lot of decay that occurred in this system that was, you know, well over a millennia old. And this isn't our topic of conversation, but uh, to sort of get us started, what was happening is that the Catholic Church taught at the time that when you die, you don't immediately go to heaven or hell. You go to an intermediate place called purgatory. And depending on your sins, you had to pay, as if you were in hell, a certain amount of time in order to get out of purgatory, and then you could go to heaven. Or if your sins were so bad, you had never accepted Jesus, you wouldn't go to hell. But the good news is that you could do certain things in life in order to shorten your time in purgatory. Or more importantly, if a loved one had passed away, there were things that you could purchase from the church that would help them get out of purgatory quicker and get into heaven. Now, this was part of a huge cultural phenomenon of interest in relics. The Europeans sort of understood that the Christian message had happened in another part of the world and so they were always eager to have things from that world. And so really uh, kings, uh, the, the, the papacy, the Vatican, were always marketing in the sense of the, the bones of Andrew, the spear that pierced Christ's side, the cup that Christ came from. And it wasn't just the, the papacy that was doing this, but really kings would make a lot of money. If you could Uh, come and see the head of Mark, for example. You would have to pay for that privilege, but then possibly you could get some forgiveness for future sins. So this process is ensuring the church is making a tremendous amount of money in addition to the tithes that the nations are making to it. But it sort of belittled uh, the whole Christian process. It became an economic exchange. What's worse, we see events like um, Henry VIII, who we'll talk about uh, a little bit. What, what did Henry VIII love above all things? Women. Women. Yeah. And so he uh, will seek to get permission for a divorce from the Vatican, right? And so the way the Vatican does it is it annuls the marriage. The marriage never occurred. But there were children. And and, 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 don't don't bother me with the details. It, it, It never happened. At some point, do we have to go back and apologize to the Pharisees? Because, in a sense, we had become, and this is all of Christianity, we had become as bad as as all of that. So, again, I don't think it's all of Catholicism. I think it was a series of really, really bad popes uh, that had led the church in this, and there was just a lot of money to be made in this process. Uh, people were certainly willing to pay it, and but it, it was a struggle. Also embedded in that whole notion was the idea that the clergy, the priests, controlled access to communion. They controlled access to the Bible. And so these these means of grace uh, were their tool and trade. And if you upset the priests, they would ban you from communion. And there was an emperor, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, that was actually banned by the Pope from communion. It was a way of gaining control over them. So I'll list to say the 16th century, the 1500s are changed radically in 1517 when a young Augustinian monk from Germany named Martin Luther writes 95 statements of fault he finds in the current expression of the church. Now these famously are called his 95 theses, but these are problems that he sees going on in the church and calls for reforms. So this begins really a revolution. You all know this. The Protestant Reformation within the church trying to reform the church, make Scripture available in the language of the people. Previous to this, it was in Latin. And that was one of the ways that there was an exclusive class. You know, people may speak English or French or German in their own countries, but the international language, the language of Scripture, the language of the Vatican, was Latin. So you had to be learned in order to get into it. This kept people from reading the Scripture. Luther desperately wants to change this. He actually will translate the uh, Latin Septuagint or the uh, Latin Vulgate into. Uh, German and it really creates uh, what they call High German. It creates the language of Germany that they still speak today. So uh, again, our, our focus isn't this this century, but there was there was a tremendous amount that goes on in this. Uh, Luther stands up. There will be other uh, reformers that occur to the West. John Calvin, and it's a, another form of uh, Protestantism. It's it's different from what Luther does. So I'm going to jump ahead a hundred years. We, we discuss it, we fight, we, we try to uh, have civil disobedience, but as with all things, it eventually comes to a war. And this was the first civil war, if you will, amongst Christians, and it was devastating. Almost exactly a century later, after Wesley started the Reformation, uh, Europe descended into its bloodiest war in its history. Now that's stunning when you think about World War II or just the slaughter in World War One, but the so-called Thirty Years' War, from 1618 uh, to 1648, was a war between Protestants and that's both Lutherans and Catholic or Lutherans and Calvinists against Catholics and it was a bloodbath uh, the war goes on it will eventually involve all of Europe and it, it is it is a bitter bitter struggle um, part of it is the nature of armies in those days they were not soldiers from a nation they were more mercenaries and so you had really a struggle between the Holy Roman Empire and I know I keep using that term and it's confusing as I'll get out it's the German Confederation. So the Germans, in many ways, viewed themselves as a successor to Rome. And so when they crowned their king, their emperor, their Caesar, they say it's the king of the Romans, not the king of the Germans. Almost always, the, king, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire is a Catholic Habsburg, which is the house of Austria. He will go to war with the Protestants in the North and Germany. France will get involved. Sweden will get involved. I did a DNA study for Christmas a couple years ago. Um, it, it, it was fun to see all my ancestors. But I had a 0.8% Swedish um, show up, which there's nobody in the family that is Swedish. And I, I'll bet you, dollars to donuts, that what that is is my family living up on the northern coast. And when Gustav Adolphus, who is the leader of Sweden, sends his Protestant army down, just made of mercenaries, they do what these big armies did, and they rape and pillage. And so my less than 1% Swede is probably from Gustav Adolphus' army attacking the civilians. The total casualty rate we look at today is about $8 million which doesn't sound particularly high to us, but it was devastating to the population of Europe. You're looking about half of the population is killed by the disease or famine. As bad as World War I and World War Two, they were nothing compared to this. This is the lowest of the low. And it was between Christians. A lot will die in this, this conflict. And this, this map sort of breaks out Um, You have the purple, which are the Catholics. Um, And then you also have, and I don't know why they did this, but um, so Catholics with some minority groups. And then in the uh, pink, well, it's not pink, that's yellow. You also have Catholics. And then the orange, you have uh, Lutherans. And then the bright yellow, you have Calvinists, which this map doesn't cover most of their territory. Um, can, can we go to the one before? That's probably a better one. Um, so that's, for the most of the war, how it broke out. The blue being Catholic and the red being Protestant, uh, which would be both Lutheran and Calvinist. So what do you do after a war... For a religion It's killed about half the population. Yeah. Um, do you ever want to go back to church again? No, no. I mean, it, like I said, the Imperial Army, the, the Catholics, was brutal, raped, and pillaged. The Protestant armies did the same thing. Uh, it was just one atrocity after another. These soldiers weren't. Uh, representing the churches they were representing uh, their their paymasters their their generals and it, it was just terrible so 1648 the church has to make a decision what what do we do gone is the dream that you're going to have a united europe you're going to have a united church it's just never going to happen there's been too much blood that's spilled so, what tends to happen is each side entrenches itself into, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Protestant. This is the way it's going to be. And there's a divide that you can still see in Europe today. Southern Europe, for the most part, is still Catholic. Northern Europe is still Protestant. I was talking before, you can probably remember with your grandparents that it was a bigger deal to be Catholic, right? Or Protestant. And you, for God's sake, you didn't marry one or the other. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. Those are still echoes of the 17th century, how far back this went. But then an amazing thing happened. And this is what Methodism is about. This is what we get excited about. This is what we want to bring back. There was suddenly, after the fire, a, a growth of flowers, a, a harvest of Christianity, the likes we had never seen. It was like new birth came up from the dead places. And this is generally how it happened. They noticed that before and during the war, all we cared about was if we were right. All we cared about is, is our dogma perfect, is our theology perfect. Um, you know, they, they would go to church, whatever side, they would say the Lord's Prayer, They would say the Apostles' Creed. They would take communion. And that's it. Nothing else was really required. You were born into whichever side you were born into. The state ran the church. If you're Lutheran, it's a state church. If you're Catholic, it's the Catholic church. Uh, You were born in it. You got baptized. You paid your taxes, which are also your tithes. You said the Lord's Prayer. You read the Apostles' Creed. Uh, You went to communion. And that's it. There's nothing else. That's just the way it all, you are. Um, and, and people started to reason, you know, Jesus taught a lot more than this. Jesus didn't just give us this sort of magic strictures that we had to follow. Um, your life should change. If you know Jesus, something about you should change. Uh, if you know Jesus, you really probably should not rape and pillage. Uh, if you know Jesus, you should be getting better. We should help people. I, it, it, it's kind of a thing. Uh, so there really was this movement following the war where people decided, ah, we, we got to do better. Uh, most of the war had been fought on the continent. Uh, most of it had been in Germany. Uh, most of the slaughters, the, the, again, because it had involved the whole of the Roman Empire. Uh, so the, most of the destruction was centered in that place. There came a thinker, uh, which is two slides down. Um, he looks like a little weasel to me, um, but he was a, a very devout Lutheran. He was a theologian, and in uh, Lutheran circles, sort of the highest religious authority were professors. Which was kind of still true today. Um, like Luther was doctor, Martin Luther. Um, this is Spener, uh, Philip Jacob Spener, Philip Jacob Spener. And he, he really begins to, to codify, to put into thinking this idea that the Holy Spirit needs to touch us on the inside, needs to be changing us. He creates what today historians call the pietist movement. And it was this desire to get Christianity back to a biblical basis where we not only think right, but we do right. He's famous for saying that in his day, we were dead right. That our thinking about God was right, but we were dead on the inside. Just because of the war, because of all that happened so it really begins this groundswell was anybody ever involved in the mass movement i mean you guys know a little bit how this stuff happens he's not trying to create a new church he's doing this on the side to help the church and it really takes off. I don't have time to go through all of it, but let me give you some of his big points. Uh, he, he writes a book that's one of the bestsellers of the day um, called Pia Desiria. Everything's still in Latin, but it's, it's the way of pietism. And it's, it's a simple idea that Christianity Christians should be transformed by their faith to live a holy life. Holy is not some set of bones that you pay to go see in a cathedral. Holy should be the way you treat your wife. Holy should be the way you treat your kids, the way you treat people in society. And again, it sounds so simple to us today, right? Because we are are part of this change in the church. I'm telling you, it did not really exist before. He creates radical things like Bible studies. How crazy is that? Well, certainly everybody's been studying uh, the script. No... Not when they were in Latin, not when they were of the use of the priests. And really the Protestants were just as bad. The Protestants got very uh, theological, very scholarly. Uh, in fact, sometimes they call it scholastic Christianity uh, for that time period because it was just a matter of theology. But uh, spener and the pietists in Germany will say everybody needs to do it. Everybody can understand the scripture if it's taught to them in their original language. Uh, And then the third big point, and again, this is what will change uh, Western Europe, is that we should do good. We really should be doing good all around us. So the pietists in Germany will start orphanages and schools, uh, homes for women, uh, retraining, hospitals. I mean, think about in our own lives. Who started most of the hospitals in the United States? (laughs) churches. This is where it gets started, this idea. Before it was done, it was done by the state, it was done by a noble, or maybe it was done by the Catholic Church. But now uh, this Christianity is coming back and saying, look at our destroyed world. We have orphans all over the place. What are we going to do with them? Well, it's our responsibility. I I, I heard Jesus say, let the kids come to me. So there's really just this explosion in the latter half of the 1600s into the 1700s of let's make Germany better. Let's make Europe better. Let's change who we are by doing good. It also begins the missionary movement. Now, again, that would seem like the simplest thing in the world. Paul was a missionary. Jesus, in a sense, was the ultimate missionary. But for Protestants in particular, they had not gone around the world to spread the gospel. And so, with Spener and these German pietists, they start thinking, why don't we go to the Native Americans? Why don't we go to Africa? Why don't we go to Asia? At a time in which people really didn't even travel, they start this kind of stuff. Important for us, uh, number four, he also founds the University of Halle, which is in Saxony in Germany, and it will become the center of pietist thought. Uh, So as crazy as this is, universities were teaching Christianity instead of destroying it. I thought that's what universities were supposed to do, but back in the day higher education available for all people was the product of the church. So it's still standing today. It's had a lot of uh, uh, face lifts over the years, but pretty good for a 17th century building. Um, I've actually been there. It's awesome. So this school was open to all sorts in society. You could be noble. You could be a servant, a, a peasant. It didn't matter. If you came to grow in your relationship with Christ, they welcomed you there. One of the unusual uh, students they had there was a German Count, a Grauf, which is our next slide. Uh, Notice his nice little hat. You know why they have to wear those? Because they don't wash. They get dirty. Like your teenager, when he puts on the cap, it means he didn't take a shower, right? So anyway, this is Count von Zinzendorf. He is actually from Austria, from a Catholic area. Because he is a count, he's part of the royal government in Austria, but his life is so changed by what he experiences at this Halle University that he decides to leave the government, take his estates, his lands as a nobleman, and do some good with them. Now, if you remember... Can we go back to this map for just a second? Um, So Europe is pretty much divided in, in its own little iron curtain between Catholic and Protestant. Now this is France. What do you notice that's unusual about France? It's Catholic, but it's got a lot of Protestants in it. A lot. So what do you think the Catholic king did to the Protestants in France? Are there Protestants in France today? Not many. These are the famous Huguenots, and they are forcibly driven from France into Protestant territory, or they're killed. Now, less that we think it's just the Catholics that did this, everybody did this. Protestants are forcing Catholic groups out. Catholics are forcing Protestants out. There's a region here. This is Austria, right here. Right above it is what today is the Czech Republic. So if you see the red just a little bit on the other side, uh, right there, yeah, those were Germans that were Protestants, but they were living in Catholic territory. It's a region called Bohemia, or more specifically Moravia. And so the Catholics said, good news, today's moving day for you. (laughs) Don't bother to get your stuff. We'll keep it for you. Uh, Get out. And when they show up with an army, what do you do? Now, one side is not, both sides are doing this. So these Moravians go. They don't have any place to go. This Count Zinzendorf, who is part of the Austrian government, says you can come live with me. Now this is crazy. He's a nobleman. He has the room, um, but he's inviting a refugee camp to his land. They came, and they were these pietists. These were these spirit-filled Christians looking for a born-again experience. And these they become called in the West Moravians because this is the last region they came from. They called themselves the United Brethren. This is where it begins. So these brethren go live with Count Zinzendorf. And initially there's only about 300 of them. But they begin to send missionaries out all around the world. Now they're refugees. How can you go from refugee to missionary so quickly? You don't have a lot of stuff. So, I know this has probably been um, a lot for you. Let me uh, show you this slide. I love, this was Zinzendorf's uh, rationale for what he could do with the Moravians and what they could do together. He wanted little churches within the church. He was going to take this little group of Moravians. These were all pietists. They studied the Bible together. They prayed together. To tell you how serious they were they started a 24-hour, 7-day prayer vigil for the salvation of Europe. And you know how long they did it? 103 years. These are some hardcore, serious, Bible-believing folks. And when you encountered one, it had a way of changing you. So this is what was going on in Europe. Uh, Towards uh, the latter half of the 1600s after the war. Now, let me jump to England because this, this tsunami of pietism begins to sweep across Europe. It doesn't just affect Germany, it affects Italy and Spain and France, and eventually we'll get to England. In England, there is a young John Wesley, and he is part of the Anglican Church which is a fancy way of saying English. Now, the English were neither fish nor fowl. They weren't quite Protestant and they weren't quite Catholic. Do you know the spiritual leader that led the Anglicans away from the Catholics? (laughs) Henry VIII. That epitome of Christian virtue. He had uh, gotten several divorces from the papacy and finally they're like, Henry, dude, work it out. You, you, it's, you're not getting any more. And he said, fine, I'll create my own church. I'm the head of my own church. And I'll give me as many divorces as I want. So all the Protestants looked at the Anglicans and thought, yeah, you guys are not really in this fight with us. Um, kind of rough on the saint. Nobody ever said St. Henry, right? Not not going to happen. But the, the, the Anglicans, as I said, they kind of bridge the gap. You still see them wear the collars. You still focus on the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and getting communion. But growing up, there was a young Anglican priest. So he went to college. He went to seminary. He went to Oxford, John Wesley. So he's trained to be a priest he decides to get a little color, a little adventure, and go out to the colonies. Hmm. James Down. Well, uh, in Georgia. Oh, I it was No, he he goes south. It's it's nicer there. I'm told. So it takes you about four months on a ship to get from England at this time to Georgia. Now it's it's a rough ride. Two things of great importance happened on that ride. Um, I think do we have yeah a little bit more there There was a storm, and apparently it was an incredible storm. It shattered uh, the mast for the sails. it shredded the sail. Um, they were taken on water. Wesley thinks this is it i 'm fish food, and it just so happens there were Moravian missionaries. Remember those people I talked about that lived with Zinzendorf on the ship with Wesley. Now Wesley is a priest. He is an English Church of England priest. And he thinks he's going to die. He's crying and screaming and running around. And then there's these pietists, these German Moravians, that are singing hymns. And so he writes in his journal, uh, he asks one of them, aren't you afraid to die? And the guy said, well, you know, we know where we're going. Um, we, we know we're going to be okay. And Wesley looked at their kids and said, their kids aren't screaming. Their kids are calm. They have such faith. And it shocked him. Because as educated, as prepared as Wesley was, he knew he was a fraud. He had this inner doubt inside of himself. <laughs> that he didn't really Feel it. He didn't believe it. It was just mental garbage up here, and he's ashamed to say it. So these Moravians on the ship with him, tremendous influence, and it's just the beginning. There's also a young lady traveling with him that happens to be the governor of Georgia's niece, and I think we have a picture of her, uh, Sophie Hopke. John Wesley May. Now, yeah, we'll do that in a second, but there she is lovely lovely lady her mother who's traveling with her hires wesley oxford graduate to teach her french so what do you suppose happens when the uh, young 30 year old uh, anglican priest lovely locks um teaches your daughter french four months on a ship it's lovely So they fall in love, Um, they both keep diaries, this is uh, what many do, and the Pietists actually pushed this, uh, what many do at the time to to record their thoughts. So we we have a great deal of information, but so Wesley arrives in the United States, Uh, he goes to visit the Cherokee, the Indians, and they say, forget it, (laughs) go away, we have no use for you. So the governor of Georgia says, okay, Wesley, you can come and be our local chaplain. We have an Anglican church here. You can come and do that. And so Wesley does, and he's, he's not particularly gifted speaker. He's, he's struggling at this point. People are not happy with him. And he has this just doubt. Here I am teaching about a Jesus I don't know. He will say of himself, I came to convert the Indians, but who was there to convert me? surprisingly, the Moravians that were aboard the ship end up in Georgia with him. And he starts to go to them and ask them, "What? what's the difference between you and me? I have all the education, I have it all here, but I don't feel anything. And so they said, well, if you want to get serious about this, Wesley, we'll help you, but you have to... Really let Christianity change your life. So one of the things, one of the Moravians, the the bishop there, said, "Um, you probably ought to not be dating right now. You're confused, all sorts of problems. So Wesley, being the stand-up guy, says, you're right. And he never talks to Sophie again. He didn't tell her up, down, which way or the other. He just said, I'm done with you. So this goes south really, really quick. She finds somebody else, and it makes Wesley crazy, jealous. They will get into a dispute. She comes to his church to take communion, and he refuses to give it to her. So her new husband basically calls Wesley out. First threatens to duel him, but he's a clergy, so you can't. And then he threatens to sue him. He sues him for a 1,000 pounds. Because you've defamed my wife. Okay. Um, Ministry's not going good, right? The governor finds out. And this lawsuit goes on for years. Um, Wesley's in the United States for about three years. And most of it's this lawsuit. Eventually, the governor says, you need to get on a boat and get out of here. And so this great Oxford educated priest goes back with his tail between his legs and thinks what have I done I met this girl I it all blew up in my face I still don't believe I don't know what's going to happen so he goes back to England and he's he's depressed he doesn't know what to do a friend of his invites him for the third time to meet these Moravians they have a church now in London at Aldersgate, famously, where they're preaching, they're reading uh, the preface to Martin Luther's book on Romans. So Martin Luther would write Bible studies to help people get into studies. So these Moravians are studying together uh, Martin Luther's work. Luther or Wesley goes to this Moravian meeting. They preach, and something happens. In typical Oxford English ways, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. Um, now, well, we hope it was a little lot bigger than that. Most of us would probably say, "Like, wow, yeah, something amazing happened. My heart, it was strangely warmed. So, in his own words, and we'll talk about this a lot next week, but it, it clicks, it happens. He knows that Jesus died for him. It's not just an intellectual exercise the, the person that had failed so miserably in America now sees that he can be used by Christ to, to do good, to, to change. So I'm going to stop right there. Um, we'll, we'll pick it up next week. Um, just you know, hear me. massive movement of Christianity of uh, pietism. Really, it's the last harvest, the last fruit from Europe. From the, 18th, from the 18th century, 1700s. is the last time Europe brought something good our way. And they did an amazing thing. So Wesley will learn German so that he can translate the hymns of these Moravians. He will uh, begin the practice. The Moravians would divide themselves into banden in German, bands in groups. So Wesley begins to do that. Uh, very quickly, he uh, he imitates but also adds to what the Germans had done. He makes it specifically English, and then it'll carry over into America. And we'll see it change again when it gets to America. So let me stop there. Are there questions? (laughs) You just did 300 years of history. So good job. (laughs) I think it is beautiful that... Thank you. I think it is beautiful that in the bitterest end of a war, when you've killed half of the population, people can finally wake up and think, maybe we should be more like Christ. So I'm going to speak for Pastor Steve and I. That's what we want. We don't want people just to go through the motions of the church just to do the important things that we do. But it's got to be here too. It's both places. We think and we feel. And Wesley will uh, capture that in the Pietist movement. So... Let's pray and we'll head out. Father our God, thank you that you don't give up on us. After Cain killed Abel, how easy it would have been to walk away after he had killed half of the people on the earth. And yet, we do it again and again. We get so full of our own interpretation that we lose sight of your mission. We thank you for the pietists that brought life back to the church, back to Europe. We pray that we might continue in their vein today. As our lives are hectic, as the storms rage and our relationships struggle, may we be like Wesley and know where we can go to hear the gospel, to hear the truth, to feel Christ touch us. May we, as a church, always be that place. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys.